Uh, so we're continuing our, our series. <laughs> Get ready. It could go anywhere. <laughs> we're continuing the series, Unlike the Heroes, and we are going to talk this morning about Mary, the mother of Jesus. And there are some obvious things about Mary that, that make her an unlikely hero, that, uh, that she was one, a teenage girl, and, and unmarried, and in, yet engaged. And even more so, she was a human being, which when you think about it, we're talking about Jesus as God's child, you know. So there's a lot to this that's unlikely part, but, you know, as we've been going through, I've been talking about things like historicity and archaeological support and, and where is the, the scientific evidence for the folks that we've talked about from Daniel to David and Gideon and were they real, were they not so I want to start there again, but I want to go a little bit different direction because with Mary, she's in the New Testament. We've been talking about Old Testament folks. So the question that I think we need to start with, and I'm certainly going to start there today, is, is the New Testament reliable? Now, those of you who have been here for a while know that I'm, I'm a, I like, you know, there's, all messages are information and inspiration, and I like more inspiration than information because it's just kind of who I am. But get back, get ready this morning, there's going to be a lot of information this morning. Uh, and I'm going to work from the work of a family, really, uh, the McDowell family, Josh McDowell and his son, Sean McDowell. Josh wrote this book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict that I read when I was in high school, actually, when I was saved at, now some of you know the story, saved at 16 in the basketball bleachers before a high school game. And uh, so, so when I was a senior, I read this book because I was still something of a skeptic. I came out of a, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it, and that settled every argument, you know. And I, for me, it was like that didn't settle that argument. I want to know more. And uh, so I looked stuff up, and, and this is a, evidence that demands a verdict has been out for a long time, but it still, it, provides, it provided me with, with so much of the support for um, the Bible. It's just incredible, the evidence for the Bible. And I didn't even know that his son, Sean, had become a Christian apologist until researching for this message. And I'm going to be leaning on their work in this message because I'm not a historian and I'm not those things. But, so I'm grabbing a lot of what, what they present. Uh, one of the things that I think is really important, when we begin to talk with someone about the Word of God, we don't, we don't need to argue for its inerrancy right away. We don't need to go to that place. The first step is simply to show that the authors intended to write that which they wrote. They intended to write reliable history because we want to put as few stumbling blocks. If we get into inerrancy and, and that kind of thing, now we've started a whole different, we start an argument sometimes, and we don't want to argue. What we want to do is present uh, the, the case, so to speak, in a, in a different way. We don't want to put stumbling blocks there. And the reason for focusing on the New Testament and primarily on the Gospels is that if they accurately record the words of Jesus then the Old Testament follows naturally. And I want to explore that a little bit. Jesus found the Old Testament reliable. And here's a couple of reasons why. One, he found it trustworthy. Matthew 26, 54, uh, 26, 47 through 54. While he was, this is him in the garden. And while he was speaking, Judas shows up and a large crowd comes with him. And Judas, of course, had arranged to betray him with a kiss. And so he goes up and, and he says, greetings, rabbi. And, and he kisses him and Jesus says, do what you came for, friend. Isn't it funny that he still calls him friend, even in the midst of a betrayal? Um, 
So then they seized him and arrested him. And one of Jesus, you know, the passage uh, in Matthew says, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword and drew it and struck, struck and cut the ear off. We find out in another that it's Peter, the impulsive one, which makes perfect sense. Uh, and Jesus admonishes him. You know, he's about to get arrested. And he admonishes him, says, put your sword away. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I can't call on the Father and he'll send legions of angels and, and an army for me? And, and then he turned to the crowd. He said, am I leading a rebellion that you come with all these soldiers to arrest me? Verse 54 is key to all of this. And it's up here on the screen. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus came not to do away with Scripture, but to fulfill Scripture. In other words, he thought that the Old Testament was really important. And so he came to fulfill it. Luke 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. Everyone is forcing their way into it. And catch 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to disappear. This is a little different translation than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. He believed that scripture was without error. Jesus is making that case. He also says that it's unbreakable. John chapter 10. The Jews, and I love this passage, the Jews who were there gathered around him said, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, just tell us. Why don't you just come out and say, I'm the one, I'm the Messiah? And he responds, well, now that you mention it, well, that's another, that probably doesn't say now that you mention it. But he, <laughs> he says, I did tell you, but you didn't believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify for me. You see, he did tell them through the things that he was doing. But you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. My sheep will know me and they will follow me. They'll never perish. No one's going to snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. It's just awesome, right? Because you know who the sheep are today. Can you get a hallelujah or an amen? You know, yeah, no one can, no one, who? No one can snatch you out of my father's hand. I and the father are one, which upset them, so they went to pick up stones. That seemed to be a thing that they did back then. So, oh, I didn't like that. Let me, you know, so they're going to stone him. They're going to kill him because he's blaspheming. We are not stoning you for any good work. But for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And then Jesus brought back Scripture. Is it not written in the law, I have said you, that you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the, the word of God came. And Scripture cannot be set aside. This is Jesus. Scripture cannot be set aside. What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said I'm God's son. Do not believe in me unless I... Uh, do the works of the Father, but if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. What we do matters. What we do speaks to our faith. What we do matters. It's not, we're not saved by works. Don't mishear me. But what we do in our lives matters. We are ambassadors. We are the evidence of the body of Christ to the world today. And, and how, what we do reflects that. Of course, for them, they just tried to seize him again because they're like, nope, we ain't going there. But here's the thing about all of that and more, but that's enough for this morning. If Jesus is truly God, 
And the New Testament records his words accurately. That's why this is so important that the New Testament be validated. Then his claims about Old Testament scriptures are true. And he says they are, they are valid, that they are without error. That's what Jesus says. If Jesus is the Son of God, who he says he is, then so is the Old Testament true. Right? Make sense? And, and Sean McDowell made this, and I, and I love this, because I think this is important, especially for those of us who uh, like to win arguments. Anybody in here like to win arguments? <laughs> the point of, distrim- uh, uh, of demonstrating the reliability of the Bible is not to win an argument. Not. The point of demonstrating the reliability of the Bible is not to win an argument but to lead people into a loving relationship with their creator. We study scripture not so that we can get smart and hit people over the head with it. We study scripture so that we can better reflect who God is and help people to understand how much God loves them, how much he wants to be in a relationship with them, how much, how much he's put on the line. The Bible tells us that. From beginning to end, it reveals the character of God. It reveals the love of God. I mean, we mess up and he doesn't give up on us. We keep moving those pieces of paper farther and farther apart, you know. It reveals to us the person and character of God. So is this New Testament reliable? A couple of things to look at. One is manuscript authority. In other words, can we faithfully reconstruct the original text of the New Testament? Can we get to that? Can we get at it? And having multiple early copies gives those who do this, textual historians, they have scholars, the best chance of success in the endeavor, right? So if it's close, if we have multiple copies of something that's close to the time that it happened, then it is more likely that we have an accurate reflection of what was intended, right? Makes sense. Most ancient books, catch this, most ancient books that are not questioned have less than 10 manuscripts existing. Less than 10 manuscripts that exist. The New Testament, there are over 5,000 fragments and whole manuscripts in Greek. 500 times what a, a, a secular scholar would say is valid, we have 500 times that many fragments and full manuscripts in Greek. And the reason I say in Greek is because if you go beyond that, there are 25,000 fragments and manuscripts when you consider all languages. Say that with me, 25,000. It's a lot, right? So it's not close in comparison to what a, a scholar would say is, val- you know, is enough evidence. We have... A lot of evidence to support the writing in the New Testament. And now there are those who claim, well, there's some variants across some of those manuscripts, and there are. But 80% of those are grammatical, sentence structure, that kind of thing. At least 20%, right? And some of those are, in fact, argued about. What, it, what, it, what are they meaning? How many of you use only one Bible to study? One version. Okay, let me challenge you on that because I want you to use more. Because what happens is the codexes of each of the different translations can sometimes render a little bit different of a, of a reading. Now, the good news about that is that there is no, as in no, none, zero, 
central Christian doctrine that is at stake with any of the disputes. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus came. Jesus uh, died. He rose. No dispute. There are disputes about minor, minor issues in the text. But that's part of why, if you re- read the New King James, cool, but add NIV. Add NRSV. Read different translations, and it will begin to expand your understanding because they can come from these slight differences in the original text that I'm talking about. But it does not invalidate Scripture. Hear that. You know? And the dates. I love this stuff. This is kind of fun because it's like, you know, let me pour some more evidence on you. So dates. The dating of our manuscripts. How close are they between the original composition and the extant or the existing copies? Most ancient works have a gap of around at least 700 years. 700. Say that with me. 700 years. Most do. Plato, Aristotle, their writings, not in dispute, right? 1,400 years between the original writing and the, any version that we have. 14, say that with me. 1,400 years. That's 1,400 years. You know, no dispute about, about Plato and Aristotle and what they wrote, or very little. There's always a dispute about everything. So what about the New Testament? John Ryland's papyrus says that the Gospel of John is dated within 40 years of composition. Say that with me. 40 years. 40 years. There's a near, that's the Gospel of John. There's a near complete copy of the New Testament within 100 to 150 years of its original composition. It's called the Chris Beatty Papyri. 100 to 150 years. So from a textual point of view, the New Testament documents are exceptional, they're accurate, they're reliable. But here, I love this, and this is the McDowell did all this research. It, it just, you know, I get excited about that because it's like, okay, I can rely on it. You know? <laughs> but this is, this, is a, this is amazing to me. Let's say all of those fra- 25,000 fragments were destroyed. We don't have any. And we're stuck with what the early church origin, Augustine, Justin Martyr, all the early church uh, writers, our, our, our faith fathers, all we have is what they wrote. We would be able to reconstruct the entire New Testament except for 11 verses through the quotes of the early church fathers. We have the manuscripts. We have extra, extra biblical support that says the New Testament says what it means that it says, this early dating. And there's, a, the, there's another way to look at dating, right? Because, you know, you can look at history when it comes to this. There's a historian's name, Colin Hemer, and he reasoned backwards from the book of Acts to the three synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The book of Acts is about the origin of the church, right? That's the church that came together and what they did, and its focus is on the ministries of Peter and Paul. I didn't say it, but I thought it. <laughs> And we're talking about Mary. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the book includes, so, so Acts includes the martyrdom of Stephen, right, in, cha- in Acts chapter 7, the martyrdom of James in Acts chapter 12. But it says nothing about the deaths of Peter and Paul. Nothing about them at all. And that we think those are dated between 63 and 66. Also, it doesn't talk about the Jewish war 
with the Romans, which occurred in 66, or the destruction of Jerusalem, which occurred in AD 70. Acts ends with Peter, ends all at once with Peter's arrest, or Paul's arrest in Rome, and there's no resolution to it. That's the end of Acts. And they, these events are significant. These altered the relationship of the Jews and the Romans. We're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and, and so much more. What that's like, right, is if a contemporary, a current history book of the United States was written and there was nothing about September 11, 2001 in it, what's, what would you think about that? When was it written? It had to be written prior to the event or else it would have been in that historical, that document, right? It would have been in the book. If it, you know, you don't, oh, yeah, America, 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 we haven't skipped 9-11. No, it would have been there. Same thing. Luke, the writer of Acts, left out those events. So what does that tell us about when they were written? They must have been written prior to. And Acts was written after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What does that tell us about Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Predates Acts. The span is shorter even than Alexander the Great has a biography written, but it's shorter than the 400 years between his death and his first biography. And since the New Testament documents are written within 30 or 40 years of the events they record, they are unlikely to be legend. They are likely to be accurate. And the reason for that, people were alive. If they'd have tried to put stuff in there, people would have said, no, that's not true. No, that didn't happen. But that stuff's not there. Another criteria that historians use is embarrassing accounts. If you're going to write something, what side of yourself are you going to present? The best possible side, right? The New Testament doesn't do this very well. Jesus called Peter Satan in Mark 8.33. The disciples never seemed to understand the parables of Jesus. You know, he'd tell them something, and they'd probably sit there and go, Hey, you get it? No. You don't say anything? No. You know, that, that's, that's the way that it was. Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. What do the disciples do? They fall asleep. Not a good reflection. It's included. Who was it that went to the empty tomb? My goodness, this cannot be good. Women. Women were the first to the tomb. If you're going to put an account and you're going to put the best face forward, women are not going to be. This, is a diff, this back then, Women were not seen the same as, the, as, as y'all are now. They were seen as second, third-class citizens. They were, they were less than. Now it's different, but back then that's the way that it was. And I know we got work to do. <laughs> Jesus criticized his disciples for having too little of faith. And on and on. This information is included, I believe, because the gospel writers, you know what they were trying to reflect? What was true? They weren't trying to make up a story. They are trying to give us an accurate account. And eyewitness testimony is often considered the best evidence. The ability for a witness to tell the truth rests on how close they were chronologically and geographically to, to the events. And the apostles constantly stressed in their writings that they were, that, 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 that was true for them. 
Um, 2 Peter 1, 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John wrote what was from the beginning. This is 1 John 1. What we have heard from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, these are the things that we write. We've been talking about witness. Remember, what is that exact? What does a witness do? They tell what they have seen, heard, and experienced of God. That's witnessing. That's what it means to share your faith in our... You don't have to be a theologian. <laughs> what have you seen, heard, and experienced of God? Share that. God will take care of the rest. Luke, the, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. This is the way that it was. They were witnesses. Not only do the apostles claim to be eyewitnesses, there's archaeological evidence that supports their chronological and geographical nearness to the events. The historian Hamer went through the book of Acts, and in the final 16 chapters alone, he identified 84 facts that have been substantiated through archaeological and historical research. And there are a lot of lines of evidence that weigh in favor of the reliability of the New Testament. We've, I haven't even touched on prophecy. I haven't touched on te- the testimony of secular sources like, you know, Josephus and others. There's, there's a lot of information out there. But even with this, even with just this amount, we have a lot to support that the New Testament and the Bible can be trusted that it says what it means to say. But remember, our task is not to defend the Bible to others, but to absorb its truth and allow that into our own lives so that we can become the greatest witness possible, that we can share what we have seen, heard it, and experienced of Jesus in this community of ours because they need to know about Jesus. They need to know that God loves them, that God wants a relationship with them. And that's that's that enough information? Somebody give me an amen because that's way more than I like to put in a message. Uh, (laughs) It's a lot of information, but it all leads to one conclusion for me, that you can choose not to believe what the Bible says. You can say, I just choose not to believe it. You can say that. You can say, I don't believe it. But what you can't legitimately do, in my mind, is to say that they did not write what they meant to write because they did. They meant to write... The things that we have, that's what they meant to do. And that makes it a reliable source. It means Jesus is the Son of God. It means the Old Testament is brought along with Jesus. It's a lot to that. And I want to always bring it back to this, because this is Sean McDowell, not me, but I'm absolutely 100% on board with this. The point of demonstrating the reliability of the Bible is not to win an argument. We have way too much arguing in the church. We have way too much us versus them with Christianity in the world. The point is not to win the argument. And by the way, anybody in a relationship? Do you ever really win an argument? (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Lynn's like, yes, you do. And Sean's like, yeah, well, you know. Win-wins are less rare or, or are more rare. You know, if there's a winner, what does that just entail? There's a loser. 
The point of demonstrating the reliability of the Bible is not to win an argument, to, but to lead people into a loving relationship with their creator. God loves you. He loves me, which is insane. He loves other people in this community. The Bible reveals that to us. That's, it's given to us so that we can understand the great love that God has for us. So let me get to Mary because, you know, that's theoretically what today is about. <laughs> Mary was chosen by God to bear God's son, Jesus. The fact that God chose this in and of itself is, is incredible. That he chose to bridge that unbridgeable gap for us. He did not have to do that, guys. He did not have to make that happen. He didn't have to send his son to die for you and for me. He did it because he loves you and loves me. We had proven over the millennia, and talk about the Old Testament, it's, hey, I, we're going to do good, and then we're going to do bad, we're going to do bad, we're going to do bad. Hey, we're going to do good again. Hey, we're going to do bad. You know, it's this back and forth. We try to do good, and then we mess up, and then we try to do good, and it goes on and on throughout the history of Israel. And God went, okay, I got you back. I'm going to bridge that gap permanently. I'm going to do it with, with my son. And Corey's right. You guys are parents. There's parents in here. That's a tough thing to even consider. But God did it. Our passage is out of Luke 1, and, and Corey reflected most of it, so, so I'm not going to spend too much time with it. Um, you know, the angel Gabriel came, and he, and he visited with Mary, and, and, um, and he told her that she, you know, she, she was going to bear the, the son of God. And so he shows up and he says, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And I love this because this is the response, right? Mary was greatly troubled. An angel shows up. You know what you're going to be? Scared. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be a little, you're going to be greatly troubled for sure. And, 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 and she wondered what kind of greeting it was. And then that's when he came to and said, hey, don't worry about it. I got you. It's okay. Don't be afraid. Sorry, I keep doing the mic version of the Testament. Uh, <laughs> do not be afraid. You've found favor with God. You're going to give birth to a son. You're going to call him Jesus. And we, we kind of know the Christmas story. And then Mary asked some very pertinent questions. How's that going to happen? I'm a virgin. The Holy Spirit's going to come on you. The power of the Most High is going to overshadow you. The, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, her, her relative Elizabeth was pregnant so in her sixth month. And, and then he said, for no word from God will ever fail. No word from God will ever fail. And Mary's response at that point is astonishing to me because she said, I'm the Lord's servant. May, the, may your word to me be fulfilled. Wow. That's incredible that she would do that. And then the angel left. But here's the thing. See this? We're not exactly sure of her age, but there is consensus that Mary was young. Which one do you think is going to be the mother of God? That's about the age that we're talking about. We're talking about a teenage girl who's going to bear the Son of God. That's pretty unlikely, right? And this is, you know, just struck me when I was preparing. You know, it's like, well, it had to, had to be done this way, but God is God. You know that God created stuff from nothing? He chose Mary. He didn't have to choose a human being. 
He could have created Jesus, just create him. But he did not. He chose Mary. She was unmarried but engaged. And this was a big problem for Mary because this was an age when that could have meant her death to be pregnant. She could have been stoned to death because she was out of wedlock. And it's a different world back then. The engagement period, the betrothal period was generally around a year. So she was considered married to Joseph during this betrothal engagement period. That was just part of the way that it worked back then. In fact, if Joseph had died, Mary would have been considered his widow. So she was an unlikely choice given that circumstance as well. And just that she was a human being, that God would choose to, in effect, come down off the mountaintop so that the gap between creation and creator could be bridged. That's just overwhelming when you think about how much God loves you. He didn't have to do any of that. He's, he's good, right? He's in heaven. He's like, well, they're struggling. I guess I'll just keep letting them struggle. But no, he didn't do that. For God so loved the world, you, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. That speaks to such a powerful thing to us about who God is. God is not a God of condemnation. Romans 8.1 tells us that too. God is a God of saving. But sometimes we need to be saved from ourselves. Sometimes we need to be saved from a situation. God is a God who saves. And he wants to do that in your life. Next week we're going to look at, at, at Saul of Tarsus, Paul. But I'm going to close this morning by reminding, by offering, by letting you know that God wants a relationship with you. God wants to be involved in your relationships. He wants to be involved in your lives. If you look at Mary's life, you see somebody that he chose who would not, you would not have thought what he would have chosen. And each of us in this place has a calling, has, has something that God is on us to be and to do. And, 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 and that's just, we, we've got to get to that place got to let go of the things that bind us so that we can get to that place wherever that is and it's different for each of us it's the great thing about being you for him right i get to be who i am for the glory of god you know who you get to be sean you get to be you for the glory of god you get to be who you are for the glory of god that's what he wants it's not complex complex or complicated we like to complicate things father in in this morning lord i pray let your spirit would sweep through this place, that you would move in each heart into place, each heart would move closer to you, that you would, that you would push and prod us, that you would help us to become all that you would have, have, have designed and created us to be. Lord, we are broken people. We are broken vessels. We have stuff, and yet you loved us anyway. You came for us before any of that. Father, if there are any in here, Lord, who don't know you in this moment, Lord, I pray that you would move in their heart, that as they ask you into their heart, that you would enter in, that you would transform and change them, that you would allow us as a people to walk together with them. And Father, for those who are experiencing your calling, 
a calling into a specific ministry, a calling into a place that you would have them to be. And the enemy might be pushing at them and beating on them to try to prevent that. Father, I pray that you would put a hedge about them and protect them and draw them close to you. Put your arms around them. Give them the courage to fulfill that which you, that, that, that you have given to them. Pray for each person here. Lord, I pray for those who are not here. I pray for all of those in this community. Lord, we want to be about you. Be your, be your servants and be your ministers and be 